0: we pray as we go back to God's word. Lord, once again, we come to you asking that you would speak to us. We come again acknowledging there are so many voices in our lives. Many of them are good, are placed there by you, like parents who instruct their children in what is right and good, and teachers who watch over their classrooms and instruct us. Many of them, even though ordained by you, speak things that are not helpful, that do not encourage faith or holiness or obedience. And so, Lord, there are many competitors for our ears. And it's through our ears that they reach our hearts. And many who would take our hearts and turn them in their own way according to their will and not yours. And so we thank you that you have appointed a time in each week. And indeed, you have called us each day To push out the many voices, to hear the one voice, to hear your voice in your word. So Lord, we we do ask that in an unusual way, you would give us attentiveness to your word this morning. That in an unusual way, you would draw us into the Bible this morning. And that you would help us to see what Isaiah saw. And you would help us to feel and to think and to believe all that you would have us feel, think, and believe as your people. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our minds and inflame our hearts. Grant us trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we were in Isaiah chapter 7. And in that chapter we saw God send the prophet Isaiah to the king of Judah, a man named Ahaz. In verses 1 to 4 of Isaiah chapter 7 you'll remember that Ahaz and all of Israel have gotten word that Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel have now come down to the southern kingdom of Judah and are about to attack it. And you'll remember what happened when, Isaiah, when Ahaz heard that, ner- that, that news in verse 2. It says there that he and all the people, they, they shook like trees on a leaf, on, 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 on or leaves on a tree, excuse me. They were afraid at the news that there was this conspiracy, this plot against them. And in Isaiah chapter 7, God did a number of things. Number one, God sent the prophet Isaiah to go to Ahaz to encourage Ahaz. Number two, God sent the prophet to Ahaz to not only encourage him with words, but also to encourage him with a sign. And remember we saw there in Isaiah 7 verse 14 that, that God gave Ahaz a sign even when Ahaz, pretending to be all religious, was rejecting that grace of God. Isaiah 7 14, the promise that a son would be born to a virgin and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And you recall that, that God had just sort of kept coming toward Ahaz to, to sort of encourage Ahaz, even though Ahaz was a wicked king. And when we come to Isaiah chapter 8, it's interesting. Isaiah 8 has very much the same kinds of actions in it as Isaiah chapter 7, except this time God is speaking to the prophet himself. God comes to Isaiah to encourage Isaiah And he gives Isaiah the same kind of sign, the promise of a son. And he wishes very much to comfort Isaiah. Because here's the reality. The the sort of danger that Ahaz faced with armies surrounding his country is a danger that Isaiah faces too. The one thing that God does not say to Isaiah in these first eight chapters, as he's prophesying the judgment against Israel by the coming of Assyria, the one thing that God does not say to Isaiah, this righteous prophet is, don't worry, these things won't touch you. They will. He's in Judah too. The righteous will face the same kinds of turmoil and trouble that come on the unrighteous, and yet God wishes to encourage and strengthen them with his promise. The main point of Isaiah 8 is really the same as the main point of Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, we said essentially, whatever happens, keep your eyes on God. Trust God. The same is the same point in Isaiah 8. We might put it this way. no, No matter what happens, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Well, Hang our thoughts on two points here, two reasons to fear the Lord. Number one, God controls the nations. God controls the nations. That's what we see in verses 1 to 10. And number two, God comforts his people. God comforts his people, verses 11 to 22. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebarakiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel." Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. And a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among the disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness." Once again, this chapter divides really neatly into two halves. You see there in verses 1 to 10, where we are making our main point there, God controls the nations. And that reminds us, beloved, never think small thoughts about God. You know that we cannot fit God into any of the boxes that we make. We cannot limit Him or shrink Him down to a size that we prefer. And we sometimes limit God by thinking that circumstances and situations are out of his control. It's clear from Isaiah 7 verse 2 that that's the way Ahaz was thinking. And when you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 28 where Ahaz made the commitment to worship the gods of the other nations thinking that maybe those gods will will deliver me from, from this calamity. That's why he sought help from a pagan country like Assyria. Ahaz thought his situation was beyond God's control. Ahaz failed to realize that God controls all the nations... And all events. In Isaiah 8, God reveals His complete control of things in, in four ways. He reveals His complete control in the timing of things. That's what we see in verses 1 to 4, where God calls Isaiah to write the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz on a tablet. If you want to know how to really pronounce that, you've got to ask Stacy Swanson, who knows Hebrew. Right? For me, it's a lot like saying, Tabiti I mean, so. He calls Isaiah to write that name on a tablet. And we don't know until verse 3 that, that God will grant Isaiah a son. And, and his wife here called the prophetess is a son. The name on a tablet is a, is a sign intended really to build Isaiah's faith and confidence in God. And to build his faith and confidence even more, notice what God does. He sends two reliable witnesses to testify to God, to attest that this is what God is doing in the world. Zechariah, the prophet, a prophet at the same time of of, of Isaiah, and, and Uriah, the priest, bear witness to God. But the boy's name is to be assigned to Isaiah and the nation. His name means the, the spoil speeds or the, the prey hastens. We use the word spoil to refer to, to treasures that, that one conquering army takes from another army in another land. Whatever they, they get, the, the, the booty or, or the, 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 the spoils belong to them. A prey, of course, is something that's eaten by another animal. The lions prey on on gazelles. So the name means that God is hurrying or hastening the spoiling, the the preying upon of Judah and Israel and Syria by Assyria. Verse 4 gives us the timing. Notice there. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Israel. Children learn to properly call their fathers and mothers by, by their names by the time they're about two years old. They always say Dad first. It's God's design. So within two years of the boy's birth or so, Assyria will conquer Damascus, the capital city of Syria, and conquer Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Assyria will carry away their wealth and their riches. The the precise timing shows that God is in control. We should not think that the timing of events in Israel's life or in our life happened by chance. Everything that happens, happens on God's timetable. Isaiah is meant to know this so that he would have confidence in God. But notice God's control is shown in the second thing. God's control is shown in the reasoning that that, that motivates him. Notice what we find in verses 5 and 6. Isaiah writes there the Lord spoke to me again because this is his reason This people has refused the waters of Shalor that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now another way our thoughts can be too small sometimes is we can be tempted to think that our reasonings and our motivations and our understandings are actually better than God's. Maybe you've had a situation in your life that wasn't to your liking. And you may never have said the words, but in your mind and in your heart, you're thinking, God, what you doing? Why are you letting this happen? Because of these things, it should be going this way. Don't raise your hands, but anybody know that temptation? Temptation? To think that our ways and our thoughts are higher than God's ways and, and God's thoughts. We may even think that things are happening in our lives and they're, they're so not in keeping with our plans that, that maybe God's left the job. Maybe God's universe has no reason to it at all. But verses 5 and 6 show us that God has, has a reason for, in this case, judging the nations. And the, the judgment is not coincidence or chance. It happens by God's own design, for, for God's own purposes, for a motivation that's in God's own heart. Notice what he says in verse 6. That they have refused the waters of Shiloh that that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, that's the king of Syria, and the son of Remaliah, that's Pekah, the the king of Israel. Interestingly, the waters of Shiloh here in the New Testament are often called the Pool of Siloam. John 9 is where Jesus heals a, a man born blind. The idea here is that in Isaiah 6 is that people refuse the peace and gentleness that God offered them. They did not like the condition of their own country. They thought the the grass was greener in the other countries. So rather than rejoice in God's provision, even in the midst of hardship, they celebrated these wicked kings because the, the, the nations preferred the sin and the warmongering, really. The pagan strength of pagan kings over the peace and refreshment of God. The Lord judges them. God's judgment is never without reason. In fact, none of his actions are ever without reason. His judgments are always justified. Here the Lord, the Lord not only judges Israel because of their sin, notice here, he also judges Syria for theirs. The, in other words, God maintains moral authority, moral control, and moral standards for those who call themselves his people, Israel, and for those who don't even know him at all, Syria. God rules over all the nations, and all the nations live under God's holy standards. So all the nations are accountable to God for their sin. God is in control of our moral lives, beloved, and the judgment that follows. He's in control of the timing, he's in control of the, of the sort of reason that, that, that motivates him. But notice a third thing, he's in control of the, of the method of judgment too. He's in control of how he will act in the world. That's what we see in verses 7 and 8. Notice what, what Isaiah records for us there. Therefore, because of the reason of verse 6, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, referring to the Euphrates, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Again, we must be careful of small thoughts about God. Sometimes we think Events happen randomly. We might tell ourselves, yes, yes, God knows all things will happen, but he, he doesn't know how they will happen. No, beloved, God, God's control also includes God's methods. He not only decides what will happen, he decides how it will happen. So in verses 7 and 8 here, the Lord uses one nation to accomplish his will in other nations. He takes one pagan nation, Assyria, and he uses them to judge his people, Israel, and another pagan nation, Syria. And see the contrast between verses 6 and 7. God's blessings were supposed to happen at the waters of Shiloh that flow gently. It's a picture of peace and tranquility, isn't it? But the people refused those waters. And so what happens? God brings other waters. He likens Assyria to the river Euphrates. And, and notice, notice how this river is described. It's anything but, but peaceful and tranquil. They are many, they are mighty and many. They rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. It's flooding, you see. It's a rushing flood. It sweeps on into Judah, the southern kingdom. It overflows and passes on, reaching to the neck until it fills the breadth of the land. I don't know how often you've seen movies or television shows where somebody is uh, trapped in the water. Maybe it's been a boat wreck or something like that or, or maybe they've been captured by an enemy and they're put in this tank and the water is rising on them and it continues to rise until they're on their toes and it's up to the neck and the chin and, and, and finally they're just keeping the lips above the water, trying to take in air before the flood overwhelms them. That's the picture God has given of the entire land. That the Syria comes like a flood that reaches even to the neck so that only the tall on their toes with outstretched, upstretched chin might be able to breathe just a little bit rather than the peaceful, quiet waters of Shiloh. But Assyria's invasion was no fluke. It was God's idea. Assyria was God's method for dealing with the nations because of their sins. And listen, beloved, just as the Lord brought the flood of judgment in Noah's day, so the Lord brings this flood of judgment on the nation in Israel's day. We must not forget that the Lord does the same thing in our day, too. As Christians, we do not believe in Coincidence. We believe in providence. God rules His world according to His plan and according to His will. And that includes the methods He uses for judgment from time to time. But Christian, though we are reading a scene of judgment, we're meant to find stability in the fact that God is the one in control here, ruling over all things. I mean, you you may be here this morning thinking that the universe is essentially random, that there is no pattern or method to what happens in the world or what happens in your life. If that's you, can I just lovingly point out, that there is no reason for you to ever expect peace in your own life. If the universe is random, without reason, and there's no one controlling the universe, then, beloved there's no real reason for you to ever think that you should have something called stability or routine or order. And please don't take your thinking to its logical conclusion. Because if you take your thinking to its logical conclusion, well that's going to bring about all kinds of mental health problems. The only reason why you enjoy some measure of peace and stability and routine in your life is precisely because you are not consistent with your assumption. You live in such a way as if you believe there is order. as, As if you believe there is structure and control. And the very fact that there is routine in your life is evidence that the world is not chaotic. That there is one who controls it. And the real secret to peace and stability, the real secret to joy, and this is why Isaiah is getting the revelation that he's given in this chapter, the real secret is acknowledging the one who is in control, coming to see that he is involved in all the minutest details of our lives. In other words, real sanity depends upon faith in God, that he exists and that he acts, that he's in control. It's the final way that God shows his control over the nations here. You see it in verses 9 and 10. He shows his control over the results. Isaiah breaks out in this little poem here, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Read these two verses and we, know, and we are made to sort of realize that sometimes we begin to think that, that God will delay his judgment forever. We begin to think that God is somehow forgotten or we may think that somehow God is like Elvis. He's left the building. Even Israel might have thought in their day, if God delays for a couple of years, he won't actually judge us. They may have thought that because they profess to be God's people, then God would not allow them to be conquered. Beloved, God is not slack concerning his promises. If he promises judgment, you may be sure it will come. That's the point of verses 9 and 10. You see the three references in verse 9 to shattered, shattered, shattered. That's the guaranteed outcome these people face because God has promised to judge them. It doesn't matter if all the nations of the earth get together as in verse 10 and and launch their own plan to somehow sort of withstand God. Notice verse 10. It will not stand when God comes to judge. And it doesn't matter in verse 8, you see there at the end, that they call themselves Emmanuel, which means at the end of verse 10, God with us. It's possible to claim to be with God while God is against you. When that is the case, there can be no escaping the judgment of God. What the Lord plans, He accomplishes every time without fail, including judgment. Peter had this to say. 2 Peter chapter 3, Verse 8, do not overlook this one fact beloved, that while that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In the context he's talking about judgment. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's the vision of the Bible from beginning to end. That this holy God is in control and he has a holy standard for all people, not just those who are known by his name. And that one day He will cease to be patient, and he will execute judgment. And that day may come like a thief in the night for those who are not ready, for those who are not trusting in him, for those who are refusing his control. And the encouragement of Isaiah is don't be such a person, refusing the rule and the control of God over your life. As we sang a moment ago, yield to him. Submit to him. Acknowledge him. Trust him. Follow him. For there's not a person on the planet except for those who are in Christ who are ready for the day of God's judgment. Not one. So God controls the nations. That's meant to be an encouragement to Isaiah as he remembers that he's in Judah with all of these folks coming against Judah. That he's in Judah with a wicked king, with wicked policies, practicing idolatry. His situation hasn't changed from it, in comparison to the situation of anybody else in Judah. And yet, point two, God comforts his people. How is Isaiah's experience going to be different? Well, he's going to go through this with God. And in verses 11 to 22, we see four, four comforts that are given to Isaiah. Number one, first of all, notice the, the comfort of a personal warning. The comfort of a personal warning. The Lord comes to Isaiah in verse 11 and says, For the Lord thus spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. I don't know if you've ever felt like God's strong hand was on you. But it's a burdensome thing. You get the sense that Isaiah couldn't rest or move without feeling this burden. It's, it's kind of what Paul felt in, in the New Testament when he talks about woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Or what Jeremiah felt as a prophet in the Old Testament when he says it was like fire shut up in his bones. There's this burdening of the, the heaviness of the hand of God resting on Isaiah. And, and, he, and in Isaiah's case, he, he comes with a strong warning. Do not walk in the way of this people. Sometimes, beloved, God comforts us in the form of a warning. Don't go there. Stop. Turn around. Think differently. There's danger. It's only foolish people who think every warning somehow takes away their freedom. It's only foolish people who thinks that a warning is somehow harm to them. No, the warning is the way a life is protected. It's spared from danger. The absence of warning, the absence of fences is is what leads to destruction and falling off cliffs and getting tangled in briars. Here God comes to his prophet Isaiah, a righteous man, and says to Isaiah, listen, let me hip you to something. Don't, Don't go in the way of this people because that's the way of destruction. Righteous people take comfort in God's warnings. Is God warning you of anything this morning? Is He putting a sign before you that some direction needs to be abandoned for a safer path? Heed the warning, receive it as comfort and grace. There's a second way that Isaiah receives comfort here. The the, the comfort of a fleeing worldliness. That's the point of verse 12. Verse 12 begins to explain precisely how God warned Isaiah. and, and, And it begins this way. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. So as a righteous prophet, Isaiah cannot live and think and feel the way the the rest of the world lives and thinks and feels. Keep in mind again, Isaiah 7-2, Ahaz heard of the conspiracy of Syria and Israel coming down to attack Judah, and he got scared. He heard the news, and they weren't even in the battle yet, and he was shook. All Ahaz could recognize were the opposing armies that had come against him. But now God comes to Isaiah and says, as a righteous man of faith you must see more than Ahaz, a worldly man without faith. Their analysis cannot be his analysis. Their fears cannot be his fears. He has to think differently, independently, critically. He can't just borrow their language, what they call conspiracy. He just can't pick that up wholesale without examining it, expecting it, and thinking beneath the language about the assumptions of, of, about the world and who's in control and who's acting. He has to be motivated differently. Isaiah was to see more than a conspiracy and he was not to shake with fear. There's an application here for our Christian lives today. We need comfort today, beloved. Nowadays conspiracies or rumors come at us on every hand. We find them in everyday medium like Twitter and Facebook. We find them in extraordinary places like White House press briefings television news outlets, and the dinner table. All these conspiracies, whether it's conspiracy against the media, or conspiracy with Russia, or the New England Patriots cheating again. (laughs) All these conspiracies left unexamined are really worldly ways of thinking if they don't factor in God. These conspiracies drive our our news choices. They drive our voting behavior. They drive the presence or absence of something like empathy. I mean, step step back for a moment. Let's think about our day, perhaps the way Isaiah might think of our day. What, What would the Lord think? of a professing Christian in Alabama who trembles at the thought of a Senate seat going Democratic, that's the conspiracy, trembles so much at that that they would elect a, a so-called a man accused of trolling young girls half his age. Now before you think hard thoughts about professing Christians in Alabama, what a fact does our consumption of conspiracy have on our thinking. The point isn't that the conspiracy leans left or leans right. The point is that the conspiracy, the rumor, the language, the idea doesn't lean toward God. And you can lean left away from God, and you can lean right away from God, you can lean back away from God. The point is you are moving away from God. That the, the presence and the reality and the control and the power and the righteousness and the goodness of God isn't influencing the way people are thinking about their world. And God says to his prophet, do not think the way they think. Do not fear what they fear. Why? Because I, the Lord your God, am in control. <laughs> Beloved, these conspiracies, these ways of the world are affecting us. Because they could have affected Isaiah without the warning. What we're reading on social media or hearing on television will determine what we think and what we do if we're not careful. I know this in my own soul, in my own heart. One of the best things for me over these last several months is just to have gotten off Twitter. So stepped away from social media. Now I'm not saying everybody needs to do that. I'm just talking about my heart right now. Because what I've noticed in the step back so I was affected more by the sort of rapid pace of this complaint, that complaint, this outrage, that outrage, this, this assertion, this accusation. That was affecting me with more speed than God's word was. And it was finding easier access to my heart and my mind than God's word was. Let's step back because I'm like, I'm spending more time on social media than I am in Isaiah. And my heart is reflexively bouncing back to check my timeline rather than reflexively bouncing back to check the word of God. And some things I'm feeling. I'm feeling because actually, I'm actually picking up the feelings of others. Sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. But it ought to always be evaluated by God's word. So so What's affecting you right now? Maybe you're not on social media. Maybe you read newspapers. Maybe, maybe you only read books. That <laughs> doesn't matter the medium. What's the effect? What are you believing? How's it shaping your heart? Does it lead you to think the way the world thinks or to think the way God would have you think? It reminds me of Romans 12, doesn't it? You know, do not be conformed to this world. What? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We've never lived in a time where we need our minds more renewed than we do right now as God's people. And that's where we find comfort. From a renewed mind. But there's another way God comforts His people. He continues to speak in verse 13. The comfort of a a God-centered perspective. That's really what we've been talking about. Verse 13 contrasts with verse 12. Notice how verse 13 starts. He, God calls the prophet to remember that God is the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of the armies of heaven. Don't shake because of two men surrounding you with their two little armies. Look up to one God with all the army of heaven. The word of the Lord is this sort of reorienting Isaiah and causing him to center his vision on God rather than man. Instead of the fear of man, the prophet's motivation must be the, notice, the honor and glory of God. He must think and feel in such a way that God will be seen as holy. He must think and act in such a way that the holiness of God is promoted in the vision of all the nations. In the midst of international conflict with a terrible king, with wicked policies and panic in the streets, God calls Isaiah notice to let God be your fear and let him be your dread. Isaiah must fear God and not man. And there's a good reason. The Bible says do not fear man who can destroy the body and after that can do nothing but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It's a terrible, it's a frightening realization that God can destroy your body and still not be done with you. That God can destroy your body, take your physical life and still be dealing with your soul in judgment and wrath. So do not fear man who can just deal with the body, but fear God who can deal with body and soul. Fear the greater one, which is God, not the armies of, of human kingdoms. When I was a little boy, my older brother was, I told you all, I think this last week, was one of my heroes. He was the strongest person I knew. I, I, I told you all, i talk a lot of junk sometimes when he was around. Tended to be nicer when he wasn't. And there was a family, I'm going to name them because, you know, they put people on, the McNairs. <laughs> the McNair family had about seven or eight kids, man. And they ran in a pack. And if you messed with one, you had to fight them all. That's just how they roll, right? And, and it did not matter if you like eight years old like I was and fighting the other eight-year-old, the 17-year-old would jump into it, right? And the playground was behind my mama's house, like half a block. You could look out the back door to the playground and over there playing ball one day, and here come the McNairs. You know, just traveling a little pack, man. They start a little, start a little scuffle, man. And I got to messing with Eric, and next thing you know, here come the rest of them. So I did what any reasonable boy do. I ran home. <laughs> I ran home, and I got to the back door, and my big brother Pap was in the back door, just drinking a little soda or whatever, looking out the back, watching the whole thing. And I got to the back door, and I get swole now, right? And I get to the door, and I put my hand on the door, and he locked it. <laughs> I said, open the door, man, open the door. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said this. I'll never forget it. He said this. He says, um, i tell you what. You can either fight them, or you can fight me. And I'm standing there with my hand on the door. And so there's this choice to be made. Who am I going to fear? the McNairs, or my brother. And you know who I chose. I chose mama. I said, mama. <laughs> 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 my mama's better than all of them. My was better than all of them. And this, and this is what Isaiah has to do. He can't say, I'm going to fear Judah. Oh, okay, you know what, Israel is bigger. No, 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 a si- Syria is bigger. No, no, no. A, no he's a, God says, look up from all these human actors and look up to me. The one true and living God. Live in reverence of me. Live in fear of me. I should be your dread. I should be the one you respect. And that's what God says to his people in perilous times. Do not fear men. Fear me. What Ahaz thought was a geopolitical conflict, Isaiah was to know was a divine hand of God. That God was in it, working his will. And when we see God in control of our suffering, beloved, it becomes a comfort to us. A God-centered perspective strengthens the heart. Next, notice the comfort of hiding in God in verse 14. Verse 14 tells us what happens when we fear God and not man. And He, God, will be a sanctuary. Sanctuary is a refuge or a hiding place. It's a safe place. we fear God and not man, then God himself becomes our our shelter and he becomes the the place where we hide. He becomes our our fortress and, and we go into him and we are safe from trouble. So everyone who sanctifies God will have God as their sanctuary. Everyone who honors God will have God as their hiding place. Hide God in your heart, and God will hide you in himself. That's the promise of Scripture, Psalm 32, verse 7. David writes there, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. He says, Selah, think about this. Or Psalm 119, verse 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. That's what he's teaching Isaiah here. Because of our sin nature, we're tempted to think, aren't we, that that if we trust God, then we will be unsafe and we will lose out. We see the ways that obedience to God might cost us something. The ways it separates us from from others who seem to be going on their way, not thinking about God. The the way it then makes us vulnerable and, and challenges us. The broad path looks so much easier to travel than the narrow path. But remember, beloved, the broad path leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. Few there are who, who find it. Or to use the language of verse 14, the narrow path leads to a sanctuary in God. And here's a tragic thing, beloved. While that's a comfort to those who believe in God, God becomes a sanctuary for them. For many others, this same God, notice the rest of verse 14, becomes a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. What a tragedy. It's a tragedy because the very God who is a sanctuary to the righteous is an offensive stone to the unrighteous. The same Lord who provides sanctuary for the faithful is a rock of stumbling for the faithless. Same God, two different results. It's sad when the one who could save you becomes the one who offends you. When when that happens, God is not a hiding place for you, not a safe place for you. God becomes someone that trips you up, causes you to fall. Fall. Someone who traps it and ensnares you, and, and against whom you fall and are broken. It's like walking the little sidewalk there at our Eastern Market. It's dangerous walking through there. You walking along, everybody else looks like they're going right smoothly, right? And then you walking along, and a brick just reaches up and grabs your foot. <laughs> you stumbling, trying to play it off, you know? I hate that sidewalk, man. And so God has become a stumbling stone for some people because they don't want to acknowledge his control. They don't want to acknowledge his holiness because they don't want to acknowledge that that they owe to him worship and obedience and reverence. They would rather give that to themselves or or even give that to someone else rather than God. And the, the offer of God's free love in Jesus Christ becomes this immense offense what do you mean God loves you, but he doesn't love everybody? What do you mean I'm only going to heaven if I believe in Jesus? If I go some other way, then, then I'm going to hell. And on and on and on, the, the echo of offense, the stumbling at the cross. Uh, this verse here that verse verse, uh, we're looking at, verse 14, is indeed a reference to Jesus. It's the New Testament writers who tell us in Romans 9, 33, and and in 1 Peter, I believe it is, that Jesus is the rock that causes men to stumble. Those who believe in him are saved. Those who refuse his gospel fall into God's judgment. Is that you this morning? Which is you? The one who's building their life on the rock so when the storms come they're battered but they stand or the one who stumbles on the rock offended at his claim to be Lord and God at his pointing out your sin and requiring repentance and faith. Don't stumble at Jesus. Throw yourself into his arms. Place your faith and your hope in him. Repent of your sins. Accept that his death on the cross was for you personally because you deserve that judgment because of your sins. And accept that his resurrection from the grave was also for you personally so that you might live forever in the forgiveness that God gives in the glory that God shares with his people, in the love that God has for you. Confess that this Jesus is yours in his death and his resurrection and follow him as your Lord. Then you'll be building on the rock rather than stumbling at the rock. Then you will live in God's love rather than refuse his love. Then you'll be righteous in God's sight rather than unrighteous in danger of His judgment. Accept the comfort of the rock who is Christ, the comfort of the cross and the resurrection and the hope of eternal life. In a real sense, beloved, without this comfort, none of the other things will be comforts at all. None of the other things will be true safety at all. They may be light, distractions, and diversions that take your mind off your real state before God. But only hope in Jesus, crucified, buried, and resurrected, builds a refuge over your soul. Trust in him. Which brings us to our last comfort here, and it's the comfort of God's word. And that's what we see in verses 16 to 22. Verse 16, Isaiah binds and seals the teaching up for his disciples only. And that reminds us of Jesus, when Jesus is teaching his disciples in parables and they ask him, why do you teach in parables? And he says, it's because the secrets of the kingdom are given to you, but not to everyone else. There's an intimacy with God through his word for those who believe God and accept his word. God's word in that way creates an us and a them situation. Verses 16-18 to describe the us. You see there Isaiah and his disciples, That word I is the main subject. Verses 19 to 23 describe to the them, the, the they there is the main subject. The verses teaches us really that there's either an in or an out. We're either with God or outside of God's covenant. And what determines that is our response to God's word. I want to say the four characteristics of those who are in with God. Isaiah and his disciples. Notice verse 16, they, they bind up and they have the testimony. Notice in verse 17, despite all that's going on, Isaiah resolves that he will wait for and hope in God, even though for a time God seems to have hidden his face from Israel. And then they understand themselves rightly, verse 18. Isaiah says, me and the kids that God has given me, they're they're a sign and a portent of, of things to come. And so it is with the church. God has left the church and the world in many ways as a sign to the world of the way to Christ and the destruction outside of Christ. And notice verse 20. They run to the word of God. They're not listening to necromancers, people who speak to the dead. They're not listening to occult teachers. It's to the testimony. It's to the word of God that they run for their comfort and their instruction so that their feet stand on solid ground. I notice the contrast between those who are out with God, those who don't know God in this way, which is the bulk of Judah and Israel and Syria. In verse 19, they, they seek mediums rather than God, which God hates. It is interesting, isn't it, that when people reject God, they don't become non-spiritual. they Just make for themselves other gods. And they seek other revelations rather than the true word of God. Notice these folks who don't know God, verse 20, they they don't speak the word. And and, and Isaiah says here, because they don't speak the word, they don't have the testimony, they don't have any dawn in them. There's no no light in them. In fact, the the darkness that's in them, Jesus says in the Gospels, is what they call light. And if if the the darkness in you is what you call light, then how dark indeed is is your soul? There's no dawn in these people. And so as a consequence, verse 21, they grow distressed. And not only distress, they grow blasphemous. They blame the king and when that's not a big enough target, they turn their faces to heaven and they blame God and shake their fists at God. Finally, verse 22, they're thrust into darkness with no light from the word There's only darkness in the world. These folks go from being hungry and distressed to being cast out into utter darkness. Here's just a picture of being cast into that final darkness of hell. Here's a clear picture of the difference that life with Jesus makes. At Christmas time you might see bumper stickers that say wise men still worship him. That's a good summary of these verses 16 to 22. If we are wise, we will worship Jesus and find our entire souls in the light of His face. The fear of the Lord will keep us safe and in troublesome times. And no matter what happens if we're wise, it's God will honor that we will sanctify in our hearts as Lord and whose holiness we'll look to embrace. If we're not wise, well, don't be unwise. Repent of sin. Trust in Christ. Escape God's judgment. Live in His comfort. Live in His love. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You for You control the nations. You're sovereign in all Your ways. There's nothing that's done that you're not in control of. Though you do not do evil, yet you take the evil plans of men and you work your good purposes. And though the world in many ways has refused you and rejected you, yet you keep proving yourself good, even to fallen nations. And Lord, we praise you for you are the one who comforts us. Lord, you are the one who comes to us and binds us up and carries us in your arms. You're the one who holds us close to your heart and and speak in smooth, soothing words. Words of hope and peace and love to all who trust in you. And this morning we're praying, O Lord, that all would trust in you. We're expecting that you would give grace to all who hear the good news of your son crucified for them and resurrected for their salvation. We're praying that you would send the light of the glory of Christ into their hearts even now so that the day star would dawn in their hearts so that their souls would be lighted by the light of heaven. Even now, O Lord, grant grace, repentance, and faith. And we pray, oh Lord, in these troublesome times, with so many purveyors of conspiracies, that we would have our hearts and our ears tuned to your word. That Lord, we would find ourselves going to the testimony rather than going to Twitter. That we would find ourselves going to the Bible instead of going to the water cooler. That we would grow in discernment of of the consumption of, of news, O oh Lord, so that we're not shaken, and so that we're not trusting false reports, and so that we're not taken in by propaganda, and we're not made to lean in some ideological direction that, that does not acknowledge you, whatever it is, but so that we are drawn up into you, our sanctuary, and we're drawn into your will and your word, and we find there, O oh Lord, that your love is better than life. So bring us more deeply into yourself, we pray. Give us victory over the fear of man by giving us a deep, deep, deep fear of the Lord. Do this for your glory and our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.